Welcome to Christchurch Manchester Sermon Podcast. CCM is one church that meets every Sunday in various locations across Manchester. For more information about who we are or about our Sunday meetings, please visit www.christchurchmanchester.com. morning everyone. Let me start by asking you a question this morning. What is God asking you to do to help bring his kingdom to earth as it is on, in heaven? Now some of you might find this a really really easy question to answer especially if you have maybe a vocational career perhaps you work in the church like, like Andy does or perhaps you have a, a secular vocation maybe you're a doctor or a nurse or a teacher um, so Andy might say that what I do is I, I plant churches, I lead churches, and I, I preach and teach the gospel. And, and the doctors and nurses might say, well, I, I care for and heal the sick. For me, it's not so simple because I can't really look to my job for something that, that shows me what I'm doing for God's kingdom. I, I work in, a, in an office, in a public sector body. I have a fairly invisible job. I can't look to my job to say, this is what I do for the kingdom of God. And I suspect that's Probably the case for most of us. Most of us are more like me rather than Andy Brownlee, the two Andys. So what is God asking me to do to help bring his kingdom to earth as it is in heaven? Well, I've got an answer for me and I think for all of us, whether we're, we're pastors or doctors or teenagers or students or, or doing a manual job or retired. And it's this, it's to love people. It's to love people. Because when we love people, we simply don't know what God might do with that love, how God might use it. You see, the things that we do matter. The little things and the big things that we do matter. And I'm reminded of Mother Teresa, who, who once said, none of us can do, not all of us, sorry, can do great things, but we can do small things with great love. Now, Ruth chapter three is a love story. Um, it's also a story about two ordinary people doing small things. And those things have a profound impact on, on their lives and the lives of the people around them. And actually, unbeknownst to them, on our lives today. So, and I'm going to guess that none of us who are married in this room or, or dating um, have a story like Ruth and Boaz's. I bet you didn't meet like them. <laughs> Uh, it certainly isn't like how me and my wife Becky met. Um, you see, Becky and I were a classic Christian cliche. We met on a Christian gap year. Um, here's a, a picture from our wedding day, um, nearly 12 years ago. Um, one of us has aged better than the other. Um, I'll let you guess who. Um, if you've been around New Frontiers long enough, um, you'll have heard of uh, the gap year called FP, um, which of course stands for Find a Partner. Uh, which is what I did, and Becky did. In fact, there were 32 of us in our year, and there were two couples that got married through that year, so one in eight. Um, I didn't meet Becky in the grain fields. I met her in a house in Newcastle. And unlike Ruth and Boaz, who seemed to have a really good impression of each other in the moment they met, Becky and I did not make a good first impression on each other. In fact, we didn't like each other when we first met. And, and strangely, uh, Becky would tell you that she thought I was grumpy, um, you know, no. um, now, either she was wrong or it became an endearing trait <laughs> as we got to know each other. 
Um, but we soon became friends, and then we broke the no dating rule by dating on our no dating gap year. Um, so like I said, nothing like Ruth and Boaz. Um, so it goes without saying that there's a few things we need to kind of just understand in this passage, a few uh, cultural differences we have to unpick uh, in order to make sense of what's actually happening in our, in our story. And there's also some subtle things in the original Hebrew that we need to look at too to, to really understand what's happening because those things are lost in translation. And, and when we see them, it helps us to really see what's going on. Now, just to recap, um, in chapter 2, Naomi, who is Ruth's mother-in-law, she realises that Boaz is what is called a guardian redeemer. Now, this is um, a law from Deuteronomy 25, and it says that if a husband dies without a son, then the husband's brother or any other closer relative would marry the widow. Now, this is a, obviously quite an unimaginable thing for us today. Um, it's uh, not something that we do today, and, and I'm sure we wouldn't want to either. Um, but this law actually did many things, but one of the things it actually did was it, it served to protect widows. Because if you were a woman back in the time of Ruth and Boaz, you'd have no job, no income, and you would rely completely on your husband or any sons that you had to survive. So the law meant that widows who had no sons would be provided for, and it would prevent them from falling into poverty and destitution like we've seen Ruth and Naomi do here. So when, when Naomi realises that there's this way out, there's this way out for, for Ruth from her current situation via Boaz, she comes up with a plan. So Ruth is to prepare herself in her best clothes and, and perfume. She's to go to the threshing floor where Boaz will be sleeping and protecting his grain. Ruth's going to lie down and she's going to uncover Boaz's feet to wake him up. And then, ambiguously, she says, Boaz will tell you what to do. From there, um, there's no further instructions for her. Now, the, the key verse in this entire chapter is verse 9. And that's where, where Ruth says to Boaz, when Boaz has woken up and she's said who she is, she says, spread the corner of your garment over me, since you are a guardian redeemer of our family. Now, this is a, a really strange, or looks like a really strange thing to do, right? Um, so let's explain what's going on. If we go back to chapter two, and we see when Ruth and Boaz first meet, and we see that, that Boaz has shown extraordinary kindness to Ruth. He's, um, and then when Ruth asks, why? Why have you shown me such kindness? Well, Boaz says it's because he's heard of all the good things that she has done for Naomi. And then he says this. He says, may you be richly rewarded by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. Now, the word wing here is the same word that's translated as garment in chapter three. So what Ruth is saying is, in the same way that I've taken refuge under the protective wing of God, I also want to take refuge under your protective wing, which is another way of saying I want to marry you. Now, Boaz, he accepts this um, proposal, this invitation, but he realises that there's another relative who is closer to him, who, who, um, and the law dictates that this person must be given the opportunity to marry her first. That's chapter four. I'm not going to go into that. Ruth then stays the night, uh, presumably because it would have been unsafe to travel home alone in the dark. 
Now, clearly, clearly, chapter three of Ruth is not a handbook for dating. Um, in fact, be wary of anyone who claims that, just as an aside, a little, little aside from here, um, be wary of anybody who claims a biblical method of dating because there's no such thing. Because back in the Bible, marriages were arranged. Um, if that's the road we want to go down, speak to Andy and Tom. <laughs> now, let's, let's address the, uh, the obvious question or the obvious thing that stands out here. This is, or looks to be, potentially quite a suggestive scene. But I'm going to quickly explain why I don't think it's suggestive at all, and why I'm confident that, that this is actually anything but suggestive and, and, and actually quite a pure scene. Partly it's because fornication, which is sex outside of marriage, was wrong in the Old Testament, just as it is wrong in the New Testament. And the Bible never shies from telling us when people have done things wrong. I mean, look at David. Like, it's a warts and all account. All the heroes of the faith, the Bible tells us when they messed up. Um, so if it happened, I'm confident that the author would have said so. And also, partly because the way that Boaz will receive Ruth's offer, whether he sees it as something suggesting sex or something more subtle, will be completely determined by his character and godliness, but also his estimate of Ruth's character and godliness. And if you, if you read through Ruth, you see that the writer is at pains to tell us that these are people of noble, godly character. And not only that, that they recognise that in each other. And in fact, you could argue, and, and I'd suggest that some of the language used by Boaz, speaking of Ruth in chapter 2, where he speaks about her character, suggests he might have actually been attracted to her because of her character that this wasn't the first time that he actually considered the prospect that Ruth might be his wife. And it might also suggest why Ruth and Naomi have a confidence that this plan will work, because they, they think Boaz might be interested. And it's why Boaz is so thrilled when Ruth makes this offer to him. So I think the writer's prepared to leave a bit of the story as being ambiguous, because they have painted such a clear picture of of the character of Ruth and Boaz, that it's more than likely that they did show restraints in this, morning, in this moment. Um, and character is really important. And as another brief aside, um, I said that this isn't a handbook for dating, but it does remind us of the importance of character in marriage. And character in general, but particularly in marriage. Because if you or your spouse don't have good character, then your marriage is going to suffer when you, when you face temptation or sickness or suffering and death or sleep deprivation caused by having children awake in the middle of the night forever. I mean, trust me, it's not good looks or your spouse's good looks that get you up at 3am when there's a a crying child. It's a sacrificial heart. (laughs) (laughs) I want to finish uh, and move on to with one major thing that I think we can learn about love from this story and that we need to bear in mind when we think about loving others. And it's this. That love is a sacrifice. You see, loving someone is something that, by definition, cannot be self-centred. If we love, we are being other-centred. Because love can only be realised through pouring out ourselves for others. So we have to be sacrificial in order to love. Because chasing our own needs and own desires will always stop us from loving those around us. I'm going to give you a a really small example of this. Um, 
on Thursday night, I was eating my tea um, with Joel, my, my three-year-old, um, and we're having paella. I say paella, rice, chicken, peas, and chorizo. Um, and mine had the chorizo in it, and Joel doesn't normally have that because it's spicy. Um, but chorizo is one of my favourite foods. Like, I'm, I'm convinced there isn't a meal that wouldn't be improved by having bits of chorizo in it. Um, maybe even ice cream would taste good with chorizo. Um, now, Joel was being a bit awkward and wouldn't eat his food at all. Um, so I said, do you want some chorizo? You know, to try and encourage him to eat. And he had a bit, and to my surprise, he loved it. Um, but then he wouldn't have any more of his dinner unless it had bits of chorizo in it. And he was also under the, ice, the promise of ice cream for pudding if he ate his tea. So I was left in a really difficult situation. The only way Joel was going to eat his tea and get ice cream was if he had quite a substantial amount of my chorizo. <laughs> so what do you think I did? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> that would make a really terrible analogy, wouldn't it, if I said tough. No, I gave him the chorizo... And he got his ice cream. And I thought, that's a really good illustration for this love is a sacrifice. (laughs) What a great dad I am. Um, Never waste an opportunity to get a sermon illustration. Um, Now, I can't claim that me giving Joel Chorizo is anything like how Ruth and Boaz sacrificed. Um, So let's look at what they did sacrifice. It's worth um, thinking about what being a guardian redeemer, uh, would actually entail for, for Boaz. Because according to the law, any firstborn son that Ruth and Boaz would have would inherit the property and family name of Ruth's deceased husband. So only subsequent sons that they would have would actually inherit from Boaz. This is quite a messy situation, isn't it? If if Ruth only has one son, then Boaz is left without an heir. And that's a big deal in Israel. It's part of the reason why we have the law in the first place, to avoid your name being blotted out from the book, from um, Israel. Now, I've already said I think that Boaz is romantically interested in Ruth. Um, And I think this proves it, because what we see here is that Boaz is more concerned with providing for Ruth, with protecting her, and loving her than he is with his own property and family name. He's prepared to be a guardian redeemer for Ruth, to love her, even though it costs himself. But sacrificial love isn't just in marriage, far from it. Look at the enormous sacrifices that that Ruth makes for Naomi. Now, Ruth is one of my favourite characters in the Bible. She's one of my heroes, Um, so I could talk about Ruth's brilliance and all day. Um, I'll limit it to a couple of minutes now. In chapter one, she, we see that she leaves her home, her family, um, and her, her nation um, to be a widow in a foreign land. She leaves with Naomi. She could have been provided for, she could have gone back home, and she wouldn't have been gleaning in the fields in a foreign land. In chapter two, we see that she actually takes initiative and, and to take care of Naomi. She's actually the one that suggests going into the fields and, and finding, um, finding grain. And, and chapter two tells us too that she works really hard. I mean, she worked mornings or night and stopping for a, a quick drink. Um, she was diligent in what she did. See, what, 
What Ruth does is she lays her life down for Naomi. She puts Naomi's needs ahead of her own. And this is because true love, true love leads to action. True love leads to sacrifice. True love can't be passive. It's an active thing. It isn't something that just happens to us. It's not a feeling that we maybe see portrayed in, in, in films. I think C.S. Lewis, as ever, sums it up really nicely. He says that, that love is not merely a feeling. It's a deep unity maintained by the will and deliberately strengthened by habit. Let me ask us this question this morning. What habits are we putting into place to deliberately strengthen love for those around us? What are we prepared to sacrifice for the people that we love? Or maybe, put it another way, what's the chorizo we're prepared to give up so that others can have ice cream? And on a bigger level, what are we prepared to sacrifice for intimacy with Jesus? We think back to Claire's message last week that we all put these altars in, in front of God in our lives and we need to tear those down in order for us to have closeness to Jesus. What are the things that we need to sacrifice in order to truly love him? Because true love can't be self-centered. It can't be something that puts ourselves first. We must sacrifice the things that make us live for ourselves in order to love people. Let's take a moment to just reflect on on what we've seen and close. Now, I said at the start that that Ruth and Boaz were ordinary people doing ordinary things. I mean, Ruth being a widow is not unusual. And Boaz being a guardian redeemer isn't, isn't unusual. Them meeting and marrying is, I mean, hardly unusual. But what they did do was they loved. And we see Boaz's love for Ruth and Ruth's love for Naomi, which are both demonstrated by sacrifice. And as we reflect on how these people poured themselves out sacrificially, we're also reminded of of another who did the same thing. Because in Jesus, we have the greatest example of other-centred, sacrificial love that's ever existed. 1 John 3.16 tells us that this is how we know what love is, that Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. Romans uh, Romans 5 verse 8 says, But God demonstrates his love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. You see, all forms of love, whether it's marital love, whether it's in family, in friendships, whether it's for our children or our parents, it's a small reflection of the perfect love that is only found in God and that is demonstrated on the cross by the ultimate sacrifice. So this morning, I want us to be reminded that we are unconditionally, unendingly and perfectly loved, but that this true love leads to action. This true love causes us to do something. It causes action in us. Because we're receiving and remaining in that love, we're then able to, to love others, to sacrifice for others, to have the kind of godly character that would make us a good husband or wife or a good friend or a good parent. Because how does the world get to know who God is? It's through us. 
And Jesus says that if the world will know we are his disciples when we love each other as he has loved us. And because his love propels us, inspires us and provokes us to love others in the same way, we can be a roof over to the memories around us, over Boaz to the roofs around us. Mother Teresa, I'm going to quote again. Um, she said, A Christian is a tabernacle of the living God. He created me. He chose me. He came to dwell in me because he wanted me. And now that you have known how much God is in love with you, it is but natural that you spend the rest of your life radiating that love. I'm going to finish with a story about how I came into faith in Jesus and I hopefully will illustrate this point. Um, now, I was a, as a teenager, I was an avowed atheist. Um, and like most teenagers, I thought I had it all figured out. Um, but then I met some Christians. Um, and these, these Christians, they emanated a, a warmth, an openness, a lack of judgment, um, and a hospitality that I just hadn't encountered before. Um, in other words, these were other-centered people. Um, these were the first witnesses in my life that, that God might just be real because it seemed that their faith in him had actually done something to change them. This was more than just hollow words and um, empty religion. And as I asked questions, they dealt with me with patience and kindness. And believe me, I was not easy to deal with. Um, you might be surprised to know. Um, I mean, <laughs> embarrassing to share this. But um, I was 17. Um, so, of course, one of my biggest fixations was, why can't I have sex before marriage? I asked that question all the time. I must have, blown, I must have just driven them insane. Um, they were so calm in dealing with that. Um, and it was a dumb question because I never had a girlfriend. <laughs> <laughs> Hypothetical question. And I was really sure of my rightness. And I was really sure that I could catch them out with really difficult apologetics questions about suffering and things like that, um, and dinosaurs. I fought them all up. And I thought, aha, got you now. And do you know what? I can't remember any of the answers that they gave me. But I do remember how they answered me. Remember how they were so patient with me and kind and loving towards me. Um, when I wasn't necessarily being particularly nice to them. And I now know these people were so other-centred because they themselves had experienced the life-changing, sacrificial, other-centred love of Jesus. And I, I'm struck again by just how little these things were. These weren't big things. There's no supernatural story here. This was just them loving in the everyday, doing simple things, small acts of loving-kindness to me. Now, I'm no longer in touch with any of these people um, because life just causes that to happen, and it was, it was a long time ago. And they might not remember me, um, and they certainly won't know what became of me and how that annoying teenage atheist is now preaching in a church about how they, helped, about how they helped to bring me to Jesus. And likewise, Ruth and Boaz had absolutely no idea what their small acts of loving kindness would do what it might lead to. Now, they can see how it changed Naomi's life, but they don't know how it changes ours. Because they do have a son, and that son had descendants. 
And, and long after Ruth and Boaz had died, one of their descendants became one of Israel's great kings, King David. And if you know your genealogies, you'll know that one of David's descendants is Jesus. So all along, God has been using these small acts of mercy, small acts of loving kindness, unbeknownst to Ruth and Boaz, to weave together his plan to save humanity, to bring his people to himself. We really have no idea what God might do with the love that we show to those around us.